Okay, so today we are joined with John Little. So John, thank you very much for joining us here. My pleasure, Sarah, good to see you. And Stuart as well. Good to see Welcome you. To so John, I would say you're definitely a multi-passionate entrepreneur. You have a lot of projects going on. So how, how about we start off with, how would you introduce yourself? <laughs> um, well, normally if people ask me what I do, the simple answer is I just say I'm a writer. Um, you know, and that, that tends to cover, cover, I guess, probably what my strongest passion is. Uh, even before I got into opening the fitness center, writing was what I was doing. So it's, it's always been there. Um, so yeah, I would say I'm a writer. And then if, if people want to probe a little deeper, then we can get into some of the other things. But uh, uh, writing is, is something that um, uh, I don't I just, I always enjoyed it. And fortunately, I've had an aptitude for it. So um, it was only a matter of time until you play to your strengths, I suppose, in, in, in life and in business. And uh, so I started writing and I was fortunate that uh, publishers thought it was print worthy, some of the stuff that I'd written. And, um, you know, I was able to eke out a living uh, uh, being a scribbler. Well, let's come to, as you said, bring it forward. COVID hits. Um, gyms are closed everywhere. Um, what do you do? How did you, how did you get through this? Did you just start writing more books? Did you, uh, like, what happened when COVID hit and how did you react? Well, um, COVID sort of um, came upon us gradually, like we were being stalked by a leopard. You know, and then suddenly it sprang on us. And we were aware that there was this thing out there that uh, could be problematic. And then boom, it was on us. And uh, I think we ended up being closed for at least seven months. Might've been eight, you know, which is not a good business model. Um, so in a sense, the timing was good for me because it, the, the initial closures came when, when the first of my biannual royalties came in. So that covered our bills. And then when they almost ran out, you know, those six months later, the second round of royalties came in. So while they were by no means a king's ransom, they kept, kept us afloat. And the other problem was just prior to COVID shutting us down, we had a sale at the gym. We, we had sold, uh, I think, annual memberships at like almost 50% off. It was like a Christmas type thing. And then the gym closed for like seven months. And then the doors opened again and we had no revenue coming in because these people who had bought their memberships didn't get a chance to use them. So we had to honor that for a full year afterwards of no revenue coming in from a good number of those that had sold. Um, just because we, you know, we hadn't anticipated COVID closures, you know. So in any event, uh, we, we closed down because we consider ourselves part of the uh, health field. Um, and after speaking with doctors uh, whose opinions I respected, uh, they informed me that this was legit. You know, this was, you know, this, this is a problem. And since our clients are not robust, 18 year olds 
um, but in some cases, senior citizens. It wasn't worth the risk. Uh, you know, why would we, you know, try and, uh, and we got approached. There were other gyms that stayed open and we were told, hey, you know, there's a way you can circumvent the, the uh, lockdown restrictions. You know, you say it's for mental health. And, you know, I, I know a guy who's a chiropractor or someone who'll write a, a note for this guy to train. I said, yeah, that's just a dodge. You're either serious about health or you're not. You know, but you can't you can't play both sides against the middle like that. So we we opted to close. And that was you know what we thought was what our part was in trying to limit the spread of a very infectious uh, virus. Um, but yeah, no, we I mean, no, no doubt we took a huge hit as a result of COVID. But, you know, I think when you pull back and look at the big picture, there's a lot of people that took bigger hits than we did. So we were fortunate in that respect that it wasn't as severe. And, and there are others that, you know, other industries and trades that uh, didn't feel anything. In fact, their business increased, you know, and, and so that's, that's the spectrum you're dealing with. And we were, you know, kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, so we, you know, we have no more right to complain than, than uh, anyone else that, that got impacted by COVID. So you've also been through, I know you shared with me some years ago, you'd had another interesting challenge on the business when there was a fire in the building, you know? And uh, so how did this COVID hit you compared to other challenges you had, like a fire in a building that you're renting with all your equipment tied up, et cetera? Well, give us a little bit of context. So COVID was 10 times worse or it was, you know, the fire was worse or like, how did, or you learned from one or the other, like dealing with these adverse things, how do, how do you look at, well, um, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> it's one of those things, it's, it's like a boxer. You put your head down and keep punching, right? You just can't, at no point do you think, well, that's it, throw your hands up and walk away. It's, no, the only way you survive is to earn a living. So you got to put your head down and keep going, you know? And yeah, the fire was potentially devastating, but you know, humans are amazingly resilient. You know, they... Um, they can take tremendous punishment uh, from life and still find a way to keep going, you know, and, and people that are far better examples than myself. But when the fire went down, initially there was a, oh my God, it was terrible. And we didn't have insurance. And it was like, oh man, what's going to happen? Um, but then it was, okay, you know, Nautilus machines are built like bridges. There's nothing that is going to be, apart from some soot and, you know, the smell of, of the smoke that, you know, we can take care of that. We've got everything clean. Next thing is where can we open or reopen? So the, the, within 24 hours, we're looking for another location. And we found one, which was very small because there wasn't a lot available, but it was enough for us to bring some of our machines over and reopen the doors again, get people training again with the idea that, you know, we would bring the rest of our equipment over, you know, over the next several months as and when uh, a larger accommodations uh, could be located. So yeah, the fire was tough. And, and in fact, that may even have helped us deal with COVID because it was almost like, well, what else? You know, it was a dress rehearsal for yet another uh, punch in the stomach, you know, and it was like, okay, you know, what else you got, you know? And so, we, you know, we had the fire, we had COVID and, you know, in, in the big picture, if you pull back and take a macro view of things, you know, as they say, shit happens, you know, it's, uh, 
I've yet to encounter anybody who sails through life without any obstacles, you know, and, and if they, if there is such a person, I can't relate to them, you know, um, most, well, there was a saying too, that, uh, you know, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And that's, that's how I have operated. You know, I, I started a business that I knew nothing about, made every mistake you could possibly make and you learn from it and you bow to yourself, you're not going to make the same mistake again. Um, so there's, it's just the ability to adapt, I think is key. Um, and that's why I'm not really a big uh, subscriber to formulas. Like for example, you could have uh, a, a seminar, you know, just down at the community center with the guys that started Amazon bigger waste of time I couldn't imagine because nothing they say is going to have an application to you. You know, it's, this was lightning in a bottle and, and it was a, it just when preparation met opportunity and, and those lines don't intersect all that often, you know, they, you know, you go to your garage and figure out you're going to start a, you know, a rival company to Amazon. Good luck to you. You know, it's, I don't think it's going to happen any more than Kodak was going to explode and be worth, you know, billion dollars. Um, and that, that's why I think in the big, big picture, instead of looking for a successful personality or company and trying to duplicate it, I think you got to fire out on your own. You know, you've got to, uh, as Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss, you know, and, and if you do doors will open where there were no doors before. And, I experienced a little bit of that when I, um, I'll tell you a story and I hope I don't take up too much time with it, but back in the nineties, I had purchased, uh, an interview, Bruce Lee's only surviving video interview. And it happened to be with a Canadian journalist named Pierre Burton. And we had advertised it in a martial arts magazine. And, and lo and behold, I was contacted by a fellow in Australia and he told me that he had articles in the Australian press every month and he was interested in distributing uh, the video in Australia. It seemed to make sense. And then he informed me that he had the rights to um, a television show that Bruce Lee appeared on called Longstreet. And off the top of my head, I said, oh, well, that's great because Bruce in that episode was talking about his martial art. If we could find a way to marry these two things, you could have a documentary in which Bruce Lee teaches you his art in his own words. Not a problem. This guy was going to handle it. He was a top-rate uh, producer, and uh, I knew nothing about filmmaking at that point. It was like great, and uh, the film came out, and I was not impressed with it. It, it. it accomplished something that I thought was impossible, and that is, it made Bruce Lee boring. Um, but worse, there were clips from his films that were salted into it, uh, including, uh, Warner brothers film called enter the dragon. Well, that's all well and good for Mr. Australia. He's the other side of the world, but I was in California. So if there was going to be a lawsuit, I had the bullseye on me. So after repeated requests to produce whatever, uh, rights or permissions or clearances he had to include this and getting nothing. I thought I've got to do a mea culpa. I've got to call Warner Brothers and tell them this film has been out and it's got clips. 
my name is on it as a co-producer and, and I didn't pay a penny for this stuff. So, you know, what's, what's the penalty? And interestingly enough, I got a hold at Warner Brothers of another Australian guy who was running their special features for DVDs. And he called me into his office and I really thought I was going to leave in handcuffs, you know. And uh, he came in, he said, well, what's the issue? And I said, well, the issue is that we've got these clips that appear here and it's really a bad film and made Bruce Lee boring. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry. And uh, you know, I just thought I should bring it to your attention. He goes, well, well, what would you have done? And I said, oh, well, I would have, you know, used more of, had I been able to more of the Enter the Dragon, good quality footage and have Bruce tell the story in his own words. And he goes, oh, well, why don't you do it? Suddenly this transgression was wiped off the table. And he said, tell you what, uh, you can you do the film? And I said, well, I, uh, I don't know. And he said, yeah, well, you do the film and also write us a, um, a 30 page booklet because we're re-releasing Enter the Dragon in a box set and we want the book and we, we need a special feature. You know, this, uh, and, and it sounds like you have the right idea. And he said, and we'll give you 60 grand. So here I am thinking I'm leaving in handcuffs. I'm walking out with a check for 60 grand in my pocket. And, uh, uh, but the only uh, caveat was that I had a week to do this film and write the book. So I hunkered down in a hotel room not far away. I called my friend who published the martial arts magazines he had a martial arts video studio so I could have access to editing stuff. Warner Brothers sent over copies of their films that I could use and I had to, I had to make something. You know, the writing was no problem. I could do that at night, but the video stuff was like, you know, I've got to deliver it. So anyway, um, it turns out that it all came together beautifully. And then for some reason, I thought I should write the closing music to the song never written a song in my life but hey what the hell so yeah i'm playing around on guitar i got a melody down i had some lyrics recorded the guitar thing took a jet to vegas got a bunch of gospel singers and musicians played them this this concept so here's what i want to do they made the thing sound like you know it was professionally produced you know so fly back to la drop that in at the end of the song but this is an example of campbell's thing that if you follow your bliss, doors open and, and talents reveal themselves that you didn't know you had. And to follow up on that, Campbell made a, a brilliant comment about um, Hindu mythology. He said, in, in Hindu mythology, there is this myth called Indra's net. Indra is a goddess. She's cast a net over the entire universe. And in the joint of each net, there is a jewel. So you can see them sparkling in the night sky. But he said, if you look into any one jewel deeply enough, you will see within it reflected all of the other jewels in the universe. Meaning that if you go into one thing with your passion, you're gonna find that all these things are part of it. And in my case, it was Bruce Lee. So I went into the Bruce Lee rabbit hole with a passion came out learning how to make films, how to write music, how to write books, uh, working with one of the biggest uh, studios in the world. I had no experience, zero experience, never done a film in my life. And um, 
you know, that, that is the sort of thing that happens. You'd be surprised what talents, what latent talents you possess if you're really passionate about something. And I think your passion becomes infectious and it, it, it gets other people enthusiastic about something that may not have even been on their radar before. Well, John, when you um, talk about the movies and the books and the, um, the gym, this, this, um, this also has close connections to your sort of view on philosophy and stuff. And you mentioned Will Durant and you got involved with his estate. How much of the philosophy piece flows through, even into your murder books or whatever you like? Is there a, is there kind of a flavor that flows through or because some people could say, it looks like John, you know, just does a project here and a project there. There's no linkage. It's just whatever the fun of the day. Is there a, is there sort of a theme or a view? That no, not, not in terms of linking the projects. No, it is. It's strictly, I won't say whimsy, but it's, uh, it's where my passion, the winds of my passion are blowing in a particular direction on any given time. And it, it's important when that is happening, that you immerse yourself in it. I, I've found that you can be really passionate about something, for example, a film. And I, I've gone to, when I remember when I first came back to Canada, I thought, you know, here I am, I've got two films um, that are produced and distributed by Warner Brothers. That's it's good feather in your cap, it's a good resume piece. And I thought, you know, most, young guys coming out of film school don't have that cred yet. So for me to approach whoever the film people are in Canada, uh, they're gonna take me seriously. Um, and I remember I had a meeting at Alliance Atlantis in Toronto. And I went in because I had the rights to uh, Will Durant, uh, his, his book, the story, book series, The Story of Civilization. It was 11 volume thing, but it covered all of human history. I mean, any, any fascinating figure from history was in the series from Cleopatra to Socrates, you know, and uh, uh, NBC at one point had expressed interest in doing a miniseries uh, based on this um, shortly after Roots came out. And I thought, I got, I'm, I got the keys, I can do this, you know, so went down to meet with Alliance Atlantis and no interest. They said, no, it's not really uh, anything Canadian. I said, well, yeah, I mean, Canada's a melting pot. You got China, you got India, you got uh, European, you got all of this, all of this cultural history, heritage um, is in here. Well, you know, we, uh, if you had something on, what was it? Uh, natives or something else that we, we'd take a look at it, but they weren't interested. So I thought, okay, you want Canadian? Well, how about this? You know, Tom Thompson, you know, no one knows how he died, um, where the body is. This is a great murder. No, I think we have someone else doing something on top. It was, I couldn't get to first base with these people. As far as a master plan, that went out the door at that point, because my thought was coming back to Canada. I'm going to pursue this at the highest level with uh, people that can make things happen. They were, didn't want anything to do with me. Um, and then I, and and what I learned was that even if they did, if they said, hey, that's a brilliant idea, we want to do it, tell you what, um, fill out this application. We'll bring it before our board of directors, and uh, that'll be in you know five months. 
And then after that, uh, we'll move it on to another board of directors and then so on. So it's a five-year process. And it's very difficult for me anyway to sustain enthusiasm for a project beyond two months, unless I'm involved in it, you know. But if it's on the back burner until, you know, a bunch of uh, execs decide whether or not it meets whatever it is they happen to be looking for, um, the wind's out of your sails at that point. And, it, and if you don't, again, if you don't have a passion for project, don't do it, don't touch it. Um, but if, if you want to see something get made, usually under budget and, and, and have it be really good, hand it off to someone who's hotly passionate about it. Uh, because that will ripple through the whole thing. If it's someone who just treats it as another gig, it's, you know, you're already lost, basically. It's not, it's not going to have the flavor that people need to watch and rewatch uh, a program. John, if we um, dig a little deeper into the Tommy Thompson story. So this is the Muskoka story. It's a murder. But where did this come from for you? Like murder books is a little different than books on, on uh, intensity <laughs> training. Like how did, how did that path, where, where did that path come from? Cause that's a long lead time to, to be able to then get your book published and then be able to get, maybe did you get a different publisher? Like, or do you have to take a different route versus your yeah. other books? Like what happened? Tell us that Tommy Thompson story. <laughs> well, I, I have a strange background that way. My, um, when I was a kid, when I was 10, my father wrote a book on Tom Thompson. Um, but as, and at the time I learned that uh, he had been up in Algonquin Park in 1930. And my father was, a, he was a music teacher and he was a guide. Uh, and he knew people that knew Tom Thompson. And to a person, not one of them believed his death to be an accident. And these were people that knew Tom and were around at the time his body was pulled out of the water. Um, and moreover, they, they didn't, he was buried twice. He was buried initially very rapidly upon the discovery of his body uh, in Algonquin Park. A family got wind of that and they said, no, 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 we want him in the family plot in Leith, which is near Owen Sound. So they hired a local undertaker from Huntsville to go out and exhume the body, put it in a metal casket, which was mandatory. Uh, in that day and age, solder the casket so no odor would waft into the train during its uh, excursion back to Owen Sound. So that's what was believed to have happened. But my father met a, a park ranger who knew Tom Thompson very well and was there when the body was pulled from the water. And this ranger's name was Mark Robinson. And he told my dad, he said, there's no way they took Tom's body to Owen Sound. And dad asked him why. He said, well, he said, I went up to the gravesite the day after the undertaker had been there and there was only a 20 inch hole dug in. He said, I've seen groundhog holes bigger than that. He said, you can't get a casket out of that hole. And Robinson then went and spoke to a fellow named Shannon Fraser who owned the local lodge on Canoe Lake in Algonquin Park. And he was the one who put the undertaker up for the night. And Shannon Fraser told Robinson that the undertaker stayed at the lodge. And when they picked him up from the train station, he had the metal casket with him. And as he was driving him up to this little cemetery, uh, the undertaker said, I work alone. So once you drop me off, see you later. You know, I'll signal you with a lantern when I'm finished here and you can come back and pick me in the casket up. Not 
really wanting to be part of an exhumation. The, you know, the lodge owner said, great, you know, and he left. But he said it was like three hours later, he gets a signal. And uh, number one, this is July in Algonquin Park. So you know what the black flies and mosquitoes would be like. You go up into the bush with a Coleman lantern, it's ringing a dinner bell to those insects. So he was left alone to dig through six feet of earth, exhume or lift out an oak casket with a waterlogged body in it, you know, open the casket, transfer this gelatinous corpse into a metal casket, solder the metal casket, close the lid on the oak casket, put it back into the ground and fill all that in, in three hours by himself. No small undertaking. So, uh, and then Shannon Fraser said when he loaded the casket, the metal casket onto the wagon, it didn't feel much heavier than when he had unloaded it from the wagon at the gravesite. So no one, uh, none of the Thompson family members ever saw the body, nor would they have wanted to when it was taken back uh, to Leith for burial. So my father suspected, as did the ranger, that it never left the park. You know, the undertaker just took the money and recognized that the, he was in for a painful night of feeding mosquitoes if he did his gig and, uh, and no one was any the wiser. So anyway, in 1959, my dad with three of his buddies who knew this park ranger went up to where the ranger said Thompson's original burial site was and they began to dig and they fully expected to find remnants of the original oak casket and they did, but they hadn't expected that there would be a body in the casket, which there was. So this went national across Canada and uh, the Thompson family didn't care for the exposure or the publicity or being made to look like dupes um, with regard to being taken in by the undertakers. So they basically told the government they wanted it shut down. And the government announced that the bones were not those of Tom Thompson, but of a full breed native or a half breed native. Um, and they put the bones into a box and they reinterred them from where they were taken in Algonquin Park and where they remain to this day. So anyway, my dad wrote a book on this and, you know, I grew up with the story, you know, and of course, with the prejudice that, you know, Thompson's body never left the park, but I was more interested in what the hell happened. How does a guy who is not just a good swimmer, but an exceptional swimmer, used to swim the breadth of Canoe Lake on a daily basis for exercise. And a fellow who was not just a good canoeist, but an exceptional canoeist, a fellow who could paddle out in a storm and pull people into his canoe who had capsized. And you know, when you get panicky people grabbing the gunnels of a canoe, you're lucky if you can keep it upright. Well, he could do it and bring people in. And he, it was nothing for him to take a month or two month canoe trip, just, you know, portaging, canoeing, paddling. And he was on a lake, canoe lake, that he'd paddled five, six, 700 times without incident, knew every inch of the lake. And on a calm morning, about 11 o'clock, about 100 yards offshore, he suddenly flips over in his canoe and drowns. Didn't make sense. Not only that, but when the body came to the surface seven days after he went missing, there was fishing line wrapped 16 times around his left ankle. That was odd. It suggested an anchor, you know, had been affixed to his ankle. So anyway, I, what I did, this, I'd had this 
Thompson story in my head. It couldn't, I couldn't go into Huntsville without thinking of Tom Thompson. And so as a cathartic exercise, I decided to go into it as thoroughly as I could and examine all of the evidence that uh, came from the various theories regarding how he met his end, hand them off to two detectives from the OPP who deal in homicide and say, what do you think? And both detectives said, yeah, he was clearly he was killed. This, this would have warranted a full on investigation and if it were happened today. So that was the Tom Thompson story and why I wrote it. But it's interesting that I went, I tried my damnedest to get a Canadian publisher to take the story and they weren't interested. No interest at all in Tom Thompson. So I had to get a US publisher who was interested in true crime to publish the book. So that, that's how it happened. You know, if it wasn't for the American publisher, I, the book probably still wouldn't, it wouldn't be on the shelves today. So John, did you, um, how many different publishers have you dealt with over the years and, and uh, how are they different from each other? Or, you know, was it, uh, they're all the same and you just phone them up and you send them your two pager and they say, write the book or <laughs> how, how's that world when you're dealing and, and particularly when you, you don't have a track record in the murder business, but you know, how do you make that transition? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, again, same thing. If you're passionate about something, you tend to be ignorant about how you should approach it or if you should approach it you just have to approach it and um i i thought the thompson story for example was was really good it was just a good story and i i viewed it as a true crime in terms of how many publishing houses i've dealt with there's probably one two three four five six probably seven that i've used over the years um, some of them have different specialties. The Will Durant ones were Simon and Schuster because that was uh, the company that published his book. So it kind of made sense that they would want uh, these lost manuscripts of his to, you know, to bring it up. Uh, Tuttle was the Bruce Lee one and they are, they specialize in martial arts publications. So they, they were a good niche fit. Um, for murder mysteries, I would have gone with any publisher that would have returned my calls, you know, um, and it just so happened that a U.S. publisher that I had used for uh, my a book on strength training for golf, of all things, and a book on training that I'd written called The Time Savers Workout, uh, were receptive to it. You know, they got back to me and said, yeah, we like it, we can publish it. Um, but then when I did the Thompson book, Roy McGregor, who is a, uh, an Order of Canada winner and a very well-respected writer, uh, he, he reviewed my Thompson book in the Globe and Mail. And when I had published copies in my hands, I thought, well, I gotta, I gotta take him one. You know, so he had a cottage on highway, just off Highway 60. And I went over there and he said, how come you have an American publisher? And Roy McGregor's written books on Tom Thompson as well. And I said, well, I, I couldn't get a Canadian one to answer an email, you know. And so he said, well, if you're doing another one, you know, you let me know and I'll put you in touch with an agent and blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay. And I, I wanted a Canadian publisher because I like the idea that you can, you know, if you have to have a meeting, it's only an hour or so away. You don't have, I don't have to go to New York, or California. So, uh, Anyway, when I got it in my head to do the Donnelly's books, I thought this is a Canadian story. And from a business perspective, which may be of interest to your readers or your listeners, viewers, um, 
because the Thompson book was published in a, by an American publishing house, it meant that all sales in Canada were considered foreign sales. So why, whereas you may get, pick a number, 9% on each book sold in the US, they have to wholesale these to Canadian distributors. So now your royalty is cut in half. And then these guys have to sell it to um, uh, the, the, the retailers. So you don't get anywhere near what's on the cover price in terms of a percentage of that. You get a percentage of this and a percentage of that. So the Thompson book did not bring in much money at all because all of the sales, almost all of the sales were Canadian. And that was viewed as a foreign sale. So that was another reason I thought I want a Canadian publisher for the Donnellys because I feel the market is largely going to be Canadian and I don't want my royalties cut in half by, you know, feeding it to its biggest market from the U S. So, um, I, I took Roy's advice and I reached out and, uh, a literary agent named Beverly Slope and was good enough to uh, take me on as a client. And she was, that's the first time I ever had an agent represent me. All my other books I sold myself. And uh, she went through the list and uh, we were starting initially to get feedback like I received before with the Thompson one. Uh, a lot of books on the Donnelly's and market fatigue and then blah, blah, blah. And to me, it was like, if there's a lot of books that shows me there's a lot of interest. So that should not dissuade people. But the thing is, you know, do a better book. You know, that's, that's your challenge as a writer, do a better book. And if you have a, a great story, which the Donnelly story is, um, it's pretty hard to screw that up, you know? So, but what I wanted was facts, you know, there, the, the Donnelly story has been told so often by people that just embellish stuff. And, and the Donnelly story of all the stories doesn't need embellishment. It's, it makes Tom Thompson look like Winnie the Pooh. You know, it's that, it's that dramatic, that much action. I mean, murder, courtroom drama, kidnappings, it goes on and on and on. And it's all true. So um, she was, there, it, was, it came down, there was three publishers that were interested in it. All, all three were Canadian. And one was an independent publishing house called ECW Press out of Toronto. And she'd sent the manuscript, which was a monstrosity. I mean, this, it had got, you talk about going down a rabbit hole. This, this manuscript was about 1,200 pages when I finished it. And it was so big that most publishers looked at it and said, we're not publishing that. You know, there's no way, you know, we're not publishing in the business of publishing phone books, you know. So um, anyway, she'd sent it to ECW Press and the head guy there, uh, Jack, called me on a holiday and I, I was surprised number one that the head of the company would call me he said listen I read your I read your manuscript I was, I was stunned I said you waited through that yeah and he went on to tell me that he lived and worked around London area he knew he was familiar with the, all the sites he really liked the book he said now our problem with it is the size he said and here's the reason it's a problem he said if you're a bookstore the more books you have on your shelves, the greater the odds of getting a sale of one of them. If you have one book that takes up the space of three books, then you have, you know, one third the chance of getting the sale because if people aren't interested in that subject, you know, the other two books that would have been there to entice them aren't there anymore. So he said, but I'm thinking, given the size of this, 
this could be a two volume series. And I love that idea, you know, because I thought that's great, you know, because that it, it does that you need it. other publishers that said we'd take it, but you got to trim 30% out of the book, which would have ruined the story, you know, and here was a publisher that uh, understood the story, read the story, even in its early form and thought it was important to get to publish it in its entirety. And so he was great, his staff were great. Um, and they did, a, they did an awesome job on the book. And so I strongly recommend ECW Press uh, to any aspiring writers that have uh, a good story to tell because they'll, they'll do it right. Well, is this book, because it's so big, could this become a, you know, put your movie head on, could this become a movie or a series or something? Do you think there's a, there's enough characters and elements? Oh my God, and yeah. It's funny, I, as I was writing it, uh, that's exactly what I thought of, was this, this could be and should be a miniseries, because there's so much drama in every five years of their lives. Uh, I saw parallels with, with successful series like Yellowstone and um, 1883, which involve a family that is beset from all sides and how the family stands up for itself. And like those two, the Donnelly's story plays out in the 1800s, like 1883. And it is about a family that is beset on all sides, but you don't have to create anything. The drama and the action, and I, and I literally mean that. I mean, the action is phenomenal street fights to knife fights to uh, stagecoach wars to uh, kidnappings to Romeo and Juliet type uh, environments, courtroom drama, um, murder. Uh, it, it just goes on and on and on. And it's all true. So uh, I have a friend actually in California who's knocking on a few doors uh, to see if that could be realized, which would be great because I, I just think it's a fascinating story. Um, and the scary thing about it is that it could happen again, given the right circumstances. It's just a very human story, you know, of, uh, with some of our virtues as a species and all of our vices, you know, and it's, 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 to me, it was fascinating when I first heard about it when I was a kid and it became more fascinating, the more I was involved in the research of the story. So you never know. Um, I, I, I tend to be, uh, you know, guardedly optimistic, but uh, recognizing that um, there's a lot of things that influence decisions when it comes to uh, making a miniseries or, or even a film, you know, it's, uh, and it's not always the strength of a good story. You know, it can be, uh, we're tied up because we're doing this celebrity's pet project right now. And uh, you don't have the funds, they pass. Don't know. But then again, I could be pleasantly surprised, which would be kind of a cool thing. So um, how do you market a two-volume mini-series type book versus a murder book versus an you know, intensity training book? Uh, or which is it? Uh, how to play better golf or whatever the different variations are. Do you market them all the same way, John? Do you just say publish off, off to you? Or do you have to do a lot of stuff yourself? And do you have different audiences? Like, how do you come up? I, I don't, fortunately, I don't have to do a lot of that. They have their own marketing people. So what they do is they look at the category and they send it down that chute that uh, appeals to you know, people that do reviews and get the word out about it. Um, they set up uh, 
a press junket of sorts for me to do when the book comes out. And so given that it was during COVID, it was mainly like this, you know, it was like a Zoom uh, interview. And so I did a few of those. Um, but apart from that, that's it. And then, of course, as an author, you you do what you can from your end, which is you throw up some information on your social media uh, site. And if it does well, if the book happens to do well at Amazon, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll post that just because it's kind of fun to see. And um, I know it's it, I just found out, I don't know, three weeks ago or something that it was nominated for best true crime, you know, nonfiction um, by some organization that I'd never heard of, uh, you know, amongst, you know, a dozen or so other books, but, you know, that kind of, that kind of acknowledgement at least is, is nice, you know, it's, uh, and it, it's another way of telling people that what they're reading is of a certain standard. It's not, it's not just, uh, you know, some guy wrote a story about uh, brutal murder in Middlesex County in the 1800s. It was, uh, it's, it's well told, you know, and so, uh, it's, I, I like that mainly because people like to get some reassurance that they're not going to be reading some plotting, uh, you know, text that takes forever to get to the point, you know, so that it's not essential, but it's, it's, it's helpful in the marketing of a book. But to answer your question briefly, all of, all publishing houses have their own marketing people. And so just like they have their own layout design people, their own copy editing, proofreading. And those are each specialties that uh, a writer um, is best to acknowledge he does not have the skill set for. Uh, every time a copy editor, for example, has gone through a manuscript of mine, they have improved the manuscript immeasurably. Um, and as far as marketing goes, these guys have the names and the contacts, and, and I don't, you know, so. If they get an email from John Little saying, hey, I want to tell you about this fabulous new book I've written. It's like, delete. <laughs> Whereas with the other people, they deal with them all the time. So they're, they're quite willing to accept their emails. And John, you've talked um, a little bit about some of the lessons you've learned as a business owner and as an author. Um, is there sort of one, I guess, regret maybe you have through your journey that you'd like to share in, in any of the different aspects of a business or, or writing or anything like that? Uh, I can't, to be honest, Sarah, I can't think of any regrets I've had because every uh, experience I had was a learning experience. So I, I, I got something out of it, you know, that, that impacted me, um, not just economically, but, but existentially. So, um, you know, we are our experiences largely. So anything I am or am not is a result of the decisions I've made or my abdication thereof. You know, it's uh, life is all about choices. And again, sometimes you'll make a choice and it's, uh, it's successful, let's say financially. Another time you'll make a choice and it's not successful financially, but you've learned something else, which helps to form your character. Um, and, and you learn something about yourself, you know, what your, how you deal with success or with failure, for example, teaches you something about yourself. Uh, that, that reading about it, you know, principles about it in the abstract can't. It's a hands-on type of thing. 
And um, th those were, yeah, I, I can't say I regret any of them, even the things that didn't pan out, uh, even being burned in certain business dealings. It was a good, it was a good lesson. And it, you know, in some respects, it really added some spice to, uh, you know, an otherwise bland existence. I mean, if you, I, I'm not a believer that there are formulas and, uh, oh, this, you know, you hear you get a mulligan, you get to redo this one again, or, or uh, if you follow this particular blueprint, you will be successful, a la Tony Robbins. Um, you know, show me a person that has never missed a payment. Show me a person that has never uh, been behind in a credit card uh, payment or someone who's fallen down. Um, and someone who's never fallen down. Uh, these are people I can't relate to because there's a human element that has been tweezed out of that. You know, if someone sails through life without ever making a mistake and everything they touch turns to gold, I don't know what species they are. But, you know, again, they got nothing to say to me because that's not the way I go through life. Um, you know, most of, you know, I, I think what I find of interest to keep my motivational fires going is to see examples of people that have gone through the storms of life or been knocked down by an unseen blow, but have found a way to get back up and continue on. That inspires me more so than some guy who just, boom, you know, maybe his parents, you know, staked him with a $4 million trust fund and uh, he hangs around with a lot of well-heeled buddies and they put some money in the stock market. And now their money's this big. That doesn't impress me. You know, it doesn't impress me at all. And there's no, there's zero room for growth in that. You know, it's just, they're doing something that they know within 10 points either way, what the result's going to be. No risk. You know, I mean, uh, you sometimes, as I think it was Will Rogers said, you've got you to go out on a limb sometimes because that's where the fruit is. John, family. So for some folks, the, um, the challenge is uh, it's great because you moved to Muskoka, you can do everything business-wise and socially that you want out of Muskoka, but damn, I've got all these kids. Why did you raise me dad in this uh, remote area? And why can't I get to the bright lights? And how, how has the family dynamics impacted you living in Muskoka? Is this sort of something where the kids didn't know anything else, so it was fine or man, yeah. they couldn't wait to get out of, you know, out of Dodge, so to speak, or out of Muskoka, like how's the family dynamics for a business owner like you, who, if you're writing, it's taking up a lot of your day and time. Yeah, well, I, I, I was fortunate that when the kids were small, um, I was writing full time, so I was at home. So I'd go in the office when you know the wind was in my sails and I'd write and the door would be closed. But if there was an issue, if there was a problem, you know, my door could be open at any time. And and out there and I always made sure that there was a break so that I could do things with with the kids you know dad wasn't just a guy in a room you know he was he was a present force in their lives fortunately I think for Terry and I all the kids were quite young when we moved back to Muskoka and kids are very uh, plastic and malleable when they're younger they just adapt immediately to their surroundings and they make friends and that was okay our oldest son I felt kind of bad for because we had moved um, from California, no, from Muskoka to California to Idaho, back to Muskoka. So he would just be making friends and we had moved again in this period of time. So I felt bad about that, but all of them, again, these are all experiences that shape them as well. 
they had no desire to go to the big city because they didn't really know what it was. Um, but when they got older, they went to university, they enjoyed that experience because now here was, you know, bars open till two in the morning and movies on every night and, uh, and, and they did enjoy that. But I think every one of them likes what the same thing that I learned when I was a desk clerk at the Riverside Inn, they, it gets into the blood. They like the pressure, they like the open space, they like the lack of congestion, um, but they're their own people and they have their own life experiences which are going to shape uh, decisions as to where they're going to locate and what they're going to do. And, but they always know Muskoka is here, you know, whenever they want it. So, um, so that's good. I mean, they, they, you know, we, number one, we get to see them, which is a huge thing for us, especially now. Uh, they bring an energy with them into the house, uh, which I hadn't realized they had always had with them until they left. And so when they come back in, everything is recharged. There's lots of laughter and, you know, and they get to regale us with what's going on in their lives and what experiences they've had. And uh, it's awesome, you know, so they're, Fortunately, there wasn't a big issue in adapting for them when we first came back. And our approach to parenting has always been that uh, we're not looking to impose our personalities on our kids. Uh, I, I wanna see what the blossoming is in them. You know, what is their innate personality? What, is their, what are their interests? Not uh, to make little rubber stamp copies of either Terry or I. And that's what's really cool because if they came back and they were the same as me, I'd be bored silly, you know, but they come back and they have their own interests and personalities and life experiences. And, and it's, it's amazing because you also have, apart from those interesting anecdotes, you have a connection uh, which is stronger than iron, you know, to your children. So uh, here's people that you love dearly and, you know, they're providing an ongoing source of energy and enthusiasm and entertainment for, uh, for your retirement years. What about people that want to learn from you, John? Uh, people that wanted to open a gym like yours or write a book or make a movie. Um, I don't know if any have approached you over time. And how, how do you counsel those folks? How do you, what, you know, um, how, how do you position uh, advice or support or uh, insight for those kinds of folks? Well, it's almost on a case-by-case -case basis. It has to be. And again, you can't want to make a movie because you want to be a movie maker. You can't write a book because you want to be an author. You've got to be passionate about the process, about telling a story in both of those instances. And, and what is it about that story that, that I think you, you really ought to look at? This is so cool. It's so interesting. Uh, if you don't have that, you know, keep the hell away from that industry. You know, it's, there's a lot of people that like, uh, and they have an image of what that would be like, you know, I'm a, I'm a producer, or I'm an author. And, you know, the problem is you can, you can do that, but if you're not passionate about the work you do, it's going to be a meaningless title to you, you know, and it doesn't mean anything. And I mean, really it, uh, a filmmaker is, contributes less to society than a department of sanitation worker. You know, it's, but if you're passionate about it, you can you can do really good things that people that may have 
an impact in people's lives in some way, provide an experience to them that had you not done this, they would not have had. You can learn from, you can learn from books, you can learn from uh, films and from documentaries. You can bring to the fore uh, significant people with significant lives with significant perspectives on life that otherwise would have been you know, beneath the radar of a lot of people. Um, so it, it's, it's great, but you gotta be, you gotta be passionate about it. You know, otherwise don't, you know, look, look for something else. If you're just looking for financial security, which is not a bad thing, uh, pursue that, you know, th this desire, there's a saying in Buddhism that if, unless a man seeks enlightenment as a man whose hair is on fire seeks water, he will not attain it. And that's the kind of passion you have to have for your projects. Um, you know, again, if, I, if I'm not passionate about a project, I won't do it, you know, um, just because I know someone else would do a better job, you know, and, you, and we don't need a, you know, another third rate book um, without any enthusiasm or passion in it. We need more passion in our stuff to keep our motivational fires burning. Um, and that's really what the purpose of art is, is as one, one person said, to set your soul on fire and not let it go out. You know, and it's, uh, uh, if you're good at art, yeah, that, that can be achieved. But the only way you're gonna be good at art is if you really, really love the subject matter that you're, that you're doing. I mean, it's why the best love songs are based on real life. You know, not just a couple of guys sitting in a Broadway office. Oh, what would be a neat thing to write about? You know, it's, it's usually experience that is, creates the most meaningful music, at least, and poetry. And uh, by extension, I would say film and, and writing, prose, you know, it'd be the same thing. So it, it's a case by case. It would have to, you'd have to counsel someone on a case by case basis and, and, you know, again, if you have that passion, don't matter what walls are in front of you, you'll run through them. You'll find a way around them. But if, again, if you just want the title and you send an email and a guy doesn't get back to you and then you get all pissed off and, you know, it, 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 it's, it's clearly not your profession if that's the case. And that's uh, probably a, a great note to, to, to conclude on. This has been an absolutely fascinating session. Um, and uh, uh, Sarah, I don't, do you have any final thoughts or comments for us this, this has been this has been a great time john hopefully you've had some fun yeah no i pre appreciate uh, you uh, taking the time to speak with me on this year inaugural uh, podcast so cheers to both of you thank you and hopefully we can get you back in a year or two and get the next update on the next, <laughs> on the next movie sounds good to me Yes, sounds great. Thank you very much, John, for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And to end off, I'd love to hear just, you, you lived in Muskoka and now you're back in Muskoka. What's your favorite thing about the area? What's something maybe someone maybe doesn't know about the area or your favorite place? Well, as I mentioned, it's in your blood. And for me, it's the fall, the fall season. There's nothing like it uh, anywhere that I've traveled. In fact, our big... Um, you know, thing Terry and I used to do when we were in the States was always compare where we were with Muskoka. And of course, you know, you forget about the minus 30 winters, but uh, you do remember the images of, you know, the dappled sunlight through the trees and the woods and the, uh, you know, the, the look of a, 
of snow on the ground and the trees around Christmas time, and then the beautiful fall colors and the the colder air. And um, I don't know. It's just like I, I'm sure that if I were if I were born and raised in England, I'd be an addict of the sea, you know. But uh, in Muskoka, those things seep into your soul, really. And so when you're away, you really, really miss them. And if you're new to Muskoka, they seep into your soul unconsciously until they grip you, you know. And at that point, if should you move away again, you're always going to want to come back to Muskoka. Um, and that that was that was it for us. There is no one one thing. It's it's everything about it: the the lakes, the trees, the seasons, the uh, you know, the, the, the lack of congestion, the, uh, for a long time, the, the small kind of mom and pop businesses that, uh, people have been running for 10, 20 years. Um, the fact that there is, uh, a congeniality amongst people, uh, like if I meet another small business owner, he and I, or she and I are on the exact same page, we've gone through the same nonsense and hardships and, and discuss everything from uh, taxes to COVID, you know, and we have uh, commonality there. So th those are all those are all nice things about Muskoka. And, and uh, again, if you're in the arts, um, man, what a great environment to practice your your art. And if people wanted to find your gym, where do they find you, John? What What's the name of your gym? Is there a way they, they can't? Can they can't keep the hell away from us. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> Give me some sanctuary. Yeah. Uh, we well, we're in uh, the old what used to be the old Dura building. It's undergone several name changes. It was a Aspire Muskoka, and now I think it's Mini Mart Storage or something. But it it's an old warehouse has about fifty businesses in it, of which ours is one. And we don't typically advertise, so you would have to reach out to me via our Nautilus North Facebook page. And if I happen to be online, I might get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> you better have a burning passion to meet John. To That's right, you. yeah, yeah, because I don't have a burning passion to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you have Stuart Morley and his wife at the gym, what more do you want? You've reached the top, right? So, <laughs> everything else is downhill. And it, but it wasn't student trees of morning that went up Kilimanjaro, I can show you that. Well, that's true, but you were... Not yet, anyway. Not yet, no. Man's reach must always exceed his grasp, you know. Perfect. Well, thank you very much again, John. This is a great conversation. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Sarah. I appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Thank you, John. Good to see you, Stuart. Okay. Bye for now. Bye now.